Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Eileen Warnos are voiced by an actor. She killed seven men in cold blood. She did not kill in self-defense, but instead was motivated by hatred of men. There's no chance of stairs in keeping me alive or anything because I kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. Seven men murdered. Only six bodies found. From 1989 to 1990, these men fell victim to sex worker Eileen Warnos as she hitchhiked along Florida's highways. Some were just giving a woman in need a ride. Others parted money for sex. But they all paid the price as picking her up cost them their lives. Was Eileen's murder spree fueled by rage and anger after decades of abuse at the hands of men? What's the real story of this rock-loving biker chick dubbed the Damsel of Death? Over the course of six episodes, we speak with detectives, witnesses, and experts to delve into the case of Eileen Warnos, tracking her notoriety as America's first female serial killer, and question if she too was a victim. We will also deep dive inside the mind of a monster, hearing Eileen's innermost thoughts and feelings from letters she sent from death row to her best friend, Dawn. I'm criminal psychologist, Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is season five of Mind of a Monster, Eileen Hornos. Episode five, Stab Me in the Back. It's January 9th, 1991, and Eileen is in custody at Florida's Volusia County Jail. But investigators are faced with a conundrum. Eileen's fingerprints may match the bloodied palm print from the victim's car, and there is evidence she pawned another victim's possessions, but none of this is sufficient evidence to charge her with murder. To get Eileen off the streets, police have arrested her on an outstanding warrant from 1986 for weapons possession. 
Eileen has no idea of the huge investigation underway to bring her to justice for the multiple murders she has committed. David Damore worked as the prosecutor for the Eileen Warnos trial. At the time Eileen was arrested, we are without physical evidence to connect her to the Mallory homicide or the Karskadden homicide or the Humphreys homicide or any of the homicides. Until she starts making statements about what she did, we have nothing. So, without specific evidence of murder, the prosecution needs a confession from Eileen, and they know the best person for the job. Tyria Moore, Eileen's girlfriend. Police tracked down Tyria in Pennsylvania the day after Eileen's arrest. She's scared and insists she has nothing to do with the murders. But knowing Eileen will do anything for her lover, police ask Tyria to help by covertly calling Eileen, who's in custody, to see if she will confess. With undercover officer Mike Joyner, the team brings Tyria back to Florida. Marion County's retired chief of police, Brian Jarvis, tells me more. When we located Tyria, uh, the prosecution had her set up in a motel room in Daytona Beach. And they arranged to have Aileen call her by having Tyria send a letter to the jail with the phone number. They recorded 13 phone calls. She was so dedicated and so much in love with Tyria, she would do anything to defend her. So that would probably fall into one of the calculations that was made when she agreed to cooperate with the prosecution. Tyria soon receives a call. Operation Confession is underway. Hello? Hi. Yes. Yes. Hi. Hey. I don't what the hell is going on, Lee. They've called. They've been up to my parents again. They've got my sister now asking her questions. I don't know what the hell is going on. Huh. Were they asking your sister questions? I don't know. Hmm. If, Lee, they're, they're coming after me. I know they are. No, they're not. They've got to. They, why are they asking so many questions then? The phone Tyria is using to speak with Eileen is bugged with a recording device so that police can listen in and possibly use it as evidence. Undercover officer Mike Joyner spoke about this next stage of the operation in the Mind of a Monster documentary. She was uh, very scared, uh, intimidated by all the law enforcement, but not pressured. And we made sure to tell her, you're not pressured to do anything. I don't think she was distraught because Eileen was caught. I think she was distraught because she had involved herself with somebody like this, and it was coming back to haunt her family, too. I'm sitting there talking to her, saying, you need to ask for this, we need to go here, we need to go there. I, I knew Eileen and how she felt about Tyree, and I knew 
what Tyree needed to do to push Eileen's button because she felt like much in love with her. I sit beside her on the bed with a pad, and when I wanted her to ask her a question, I'd write it down. Ask her this, ask her this. If she'd answer, and then they'd hang up, and we'd go over it all again. They called back, we'd do the same thing. And uh, just kept asking. Kept writing down questions that I knew would set Eileen off. It's a delicate process that takes days of repeated phone calls. If Tyria pushes too much, Eileen could get suspicious. But if she doesn't ask the right questions, Eileen won't confess. <laughs> what? I'm not going to let you go to jail. You evidently don't love me anymore. You don't trust me or anything. I mean, you're going to let me get in trouble for something that I didn't do. I said I'm not. I can't help it. I'm scared shitless. I know. And then, Eileen says the words they've all been waiting for. What? I have to confess I will. Okay. Yes. Why the hell did you do this? Why did you do this? Brian, we've just heard Eileen say to Ty, if I have to confess everything to keep you from getting into trouble, I will. That moment must have been filled with conflicting emotions. I mean, here you have her saying she will confess, but it's to protect the woman she loves most. What did you make of that? I thought it was a very emotional call on both ends. And Eileen viewed Tyria as her soulmate. She thought they'd be together forever. Tyria, I think, did everything she could to protect herself, but she felt she had to do that, and it was, I guess you could say, self-preservation. But going back really quickly to the taped call in which Eileen says to Tyria, if I have to confess, I will. It's kind of interesting how she worded that, don't you think? It is, and I always thought that because the way I view it is she would do anything to protect Tyria. So why is she protecting her? Tyria was working with the prosecution at the time of the phone calls. But you know, she had no idea that they weren't going to prosecute her, but she was going to do her best. And ultimately, as you heard at the end of that last phone call, uh, Tyria said, do it now. And she said, okay. And then she contacted a correction officer then and, and said she wanted to talk to police. Dear Don, crying my eyes out and say, 
I need to talk to someone working on the recent murders around Florida. On January 16th, Eileen tells corrections officers that she wants to confess to the murders. This is recorded archive audio from the interview room in Volusia County Jail. Uh, how are you doing? Well, I came here to confess to murder. Okay. In that audio, Eileen states, I came here to confess to murder. But in a letter to her best friend, Don Botkins, Eileen says she wasn't happy about the circumstances of her interview, describing her mental state and hallucinations. Dear Don, they used extortion to make me melt over concern for Tyria and confess. And personally, I wasn't ready to, at least not until I dried out from my alcoholism. I was about to confess when in my heart, I wasn't ready. I was still mentally incompetent and incoherent too, with the shakes. I at one time thought I saw a group of worms swimming around in a corner, but didn't react to it because it only lasted a second. I want to talk to retired Marion County Detective David Taylor to see what he made of these startling claims. Depending on what mood she was in that day, what was playing in her mind is what came out of her mouth. Uh, what I do know is the evidence that we have uh, and was discovered at the crime scenes, you know, what we learned from the victims, uh, what we learned from the autopsy. And with her account of how some of these crimes unfolded, her stories would change from time to time, which I think is most likely indicative of some of her psychological turmoil or her personality uh, disorders. So, and I've dealt with people in the past where, you know, they've been charged with some serious crimes and one day they have a different perception as to how things occurred. You know, it's their perception. And I, I think Aileen is no different. You know, um, you know, she knew she'd killed seven guys. While I do agree with David Taylor that Eileen probably did have changing perceptions of events as they unfolded, I do also believe that this is a woman who is very much struggling with deteriorating mental health. I speak with Dr. Jethro Toomer, who psychologically evaluated Eileen on multiple occasions while she was in custody. What did you make of Eileen's hallucinations, specifically her recollection of seeing a group of worms swimming around during her confession? I think it was characteristic of, I believe that she moved in and out of various levels of severity in terms of the symptomatology uh, manifested. I believe that at times she may have hallucinated I be, remember, I believe it was when she was on death row, right before they executed her, she said something about, I'm going to join the mothership. And so at various points in time, she has engaged in, uh, she has alluded to behavior that suggests that she is, uh, she's not very reality oriented. She's out of touch with reality. It's a theme that continues. Eileen suffers more hallucinations and later will suspect she is a victim of a conspiracy. But when so many of her thoughts are lucid and eloquent, she must have found it hard to separate reality from fantasy. I speak to trauma expert Dr. Tasha Jackson about this. 
Tasha, it kind of makes sense that she would be having these hallucinations, doesn't it? I mean, given her childhood trauma and her family history of schizophrenia. Yes, it does. And it's interesting that she has um, multiple of them, which makes me think the severity of it. But it makes me wonder then, what is the diagnosis of it being, um, you know, depression with psychotic features or bipolar with psychotic features or schizophrenia, which if she has a history of schizophrenia in her family, and then it makes me think, okay, usually with hallucinations, there can be delusions. So what delusional thoughts is she having? And she acknowledges that she knows she's not well. Um, and at the same time, my heart goes out to her, like she's been pressed so much environmentally. Was this her brain just trying to like, I need a break from reality and just know that I'm not there. When somebody is having a hallucination right that, they are seeing senses that we are not actually seeing. Given we know all of this about Eileen, can we honestly say if she was ever mentally competent to stand trial? Either way, one thing's for sure. She is still adamant about protecting her girlfriend, Tyria, and when interviewed, stresses only she is responsible. As the hours go by, Eileen is given a hot drink and a cigarette. She has a map and shows police the areas she committed her crimes. But what's also apparent from letters to Dawn is that Eileen tries to plead self-defense in the Richard Mallory case. Eileen claims that a lot of what she says in custody is ignored. Dear Don, they'd cut me off if at times I'd start rolling. The guy in the sausage truck was gonna kill you? Now me. Oh yeah, he cut off. See how they jumped any statements about self-defense? Eileen is charged with the murder of Richard Mallory, victim number one, and the only murder in Volusia County. It is this case that will be tried first, making national headlines. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. 
Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It is November 1991. Eileen Warnos is behind bars, awaiting trial for the murder of Richard Mallory, having also confessed to the murders of six other men. Eileen, scarred by abuse, rape, and neglect in her childhood, has once again been let down by someone she thought she could fully love and trust, Tyria. But good friend Dawn is always close by. What was it like when you finally got to visit Eileen? Well, I was so damn happy, it wasn't funny, but I was paranoid at the same time because I had to take two planes to get there and I was scared to death. But you know, it was the safest place she ever was. You know, she had a nice warm bed, you know, TV, loved her music, and she would loved her writing. It was a special moment for you both. Yeah, because she just put a big grin on her face and she said, oh my God, Dawn, you look the same. She got your hair kind of short, though. And I'm like, no, you look you look the same as you did, that's for sure, because she had such white, beautiful blonde hair. And she had her brush in her hand because she carried her brush with her all the time. She'd stop a conversation just to brush her hair. She'd say, wait a minute. And she would uh, lean over her chair, brush her hair down, flick it back. And what did Eileen say to you before she went to trial? She would say, I can't believe they're doing this so, you know, to me. I'm a woman that was raped, and then she'd go on about some of the rapes and stuff like that. But I would go off to something else, like, come on, let's talk about other things you did in your life and you're going to do in your life. I didn't come here to sit and hear the stories on these guys. Write them down. Huh. You know, <laughs> which she did. 
On January 14, 1992, Eileen Warnos appears in court for the murder of Richard Mallory. Overnight, she becomes notorious. Her face is in every newspaper and on every news channel, dubbed America's first female serial killer. As she has been ignored almost all of her life, I want to hear how Dawn thought Eileen handled the sudden attention. You know, she couldn't stand it. She really couldn't stand the media being around all the time and all that. But if you ever notice, actually, when she notices the camera staring at her, she will take a minute to wave to him, flick her hair back, smile or something, make sure her hair is nice for the picture. It's kind of funny. But she was pretty good with the camera until they would come off with stupid questions. You know, what about the murders and stuff like that? You know, then she would go off on and swear horribly. Give him the finger. That was she's known for doing that one. What do you think about how the media treated her? Well, actually, they were very terrible against her. We didn't pay no much attention to that with the media stuff or anything. It just was nothing that mattered to her and I. We just were ourselves at all times, and that's all there was to it. In a letter to Dawn, Eileen's anger toward men in the media is also starkly apparent. Did I look real skinny on TV? If not, well, I am. TV makes you look heavier than you are. I agree with the tabloid photos, but that was intentional by the males who took the snaps. Number one, because I'm considered a whore, which actually men are more of. Two, because I had enough balls to knock off some rapists. And three, because women aren't supposed to pose such power and authority against an assailant. We're supposed to be abused, used, raped. Actually, I should be given a medal for it. I help society and other girls. Do I hate men? Not really. Just ones that think like their brains are in their ass and penis. The anger will only increase as the trial gets underway. The stage is set, and Eileen's made her entrance. I want to know what the atmosphere was like in court from prosecutor David Damore. Back in uh, 1989 until the trial in 92, the Eileen Warnos story and the methods of the deaths and the fact of the, the men being killed in some compromising situations uh, took on uh, media uh, hysteria. Uh, it was covered throughout the world. Uh, I had been on some high-profile local cases, but never seen anything to the degree of the interest uh, in the media. What did you make of Eileen in court? The truth is, is that early on, it became very evident in dealing with Eileen, reading her psychological evaluations and seeing her in court, that Eileen really wasn't a robber. Eileen was a murderer. Eileen was a murderer who robbed, which is a totally different kind of person. And I can tell you that when it, if you looked into Eileen's eyes, all you saw was anger and hatred. Uh, there was, in my mind, no remorse, no compassion uh, for anyone other than, candidly, Tyra Moore, who I think actually was the object of her love. And there was some humanity, if you can call it that, uh, in her feelings towards that other woman. With the state of Florida having the death penalty, Eileen's life could be on the line. Her argument? 
self-defense. During this first trial, her state-appointed defense team is Trisha Jenkins, Billy Nolis, and William Miller. Defense attorney Joe Hobson is involved in the case later on, but tells me about the start of this first trial. My own theory about Eileen is I think she had the life of a, you know, a street prostitute. And I really think after Mallory, she just snapped. Tell me a little bit why the Mallory trial was so pivotal. Well, first of all, it was the first. Mallory, interestingly, was a television repairman, (laughs) a radio repairman in Palm Harbor, which is Pinellas County. The shot across the bow at that point was that, you know, they were playing for keeps. They were not going to let his past record in, and uh, this was a little bit of the road. And, you know, Eileen might have had hope back then. But after that, I think she just got kind of worn down. And how was her demeanor at the start of the trial? We know she typically has a pretty short fuse. I think compared to her behavior during the trial, she was sedate and relatively refrained. And what was she like when the defense team would try to speak to her outside of the courtroom and away from the cameras? Well, I'll I'll be mild. Eileen was as crazy as a shithouse rat. Now, the state said, oh, she's just antisocial. That's what they say about all. I think she had schizoid. I mean, (laughs) a lot of what she said is like just out there. This trial is only for the murder of Richard Mallory. However, many of the other victims' families are present throughout, and emotions run high. Kathy Sims is the niece of victim Peter Sims. He's the man who tried to help Eileen by giving her a ride, but was shot to death. Kathy spoke on the Mind of a Monster documentary in 2020 about how she felt in court. At the trial, I was still very angry. And when I saw her, I was, and she saw me, I, she was, she was still in the, the, the saying that all those men were taking advantage of her, even Uncle Pete was taking advantage of her. And it's not true. It wasn't true. She was facing me as I was in the seat to try to say what the, judge what the lawyers were asking me and seeing her I was just overwhelmed (laughs) I was overwhelmed with anger and grief the prosecution makes their opening statement describing Eileen as a predatory prostitute with the unbelievable claim that she had sex with over 250,000 men. The defense team maintains Eileen is also a victim who killed in self-defense, telling the court she suffered sodomy and degradation. The court is hushed and falls silent. Eileen's confession tape is about to be played for everyone to hear. Good morning. The court hears those words, I came here to confess to murder. I speak to David Damore, prosecution lawyer. 
That confession when taken by the police was difficult from a legal standpoint because Eileen would ramble from victim to victim. And sometimes her descriptions of what she did to one man might actually be the description of what she had done to another. And so when it came time to cross-examine her uh, with her own statements, you had to be very careful at that stage of the trial because we had not yet introduced any evidence of the other homicides. But what about her assertions of self-defense? She claimed that Richard Mallory tried to rape her. You have to accept a false premise. And that premise is what Eileen Warnos described as what had occurred to her. But the fact of the matter, that information did not come out from Eileen Warnos until she was meeting with her defense team, talking about self-defense as a possible defense in the case. And then, of course, talking about mitigation and defense of her case uh, with a number of uh, mental health experts. If you look at the physical facts of Richard Mowry, he was shot four times, twice in the back, twice in the front. It was obvious that the parties that were out there, the two individuals, uh, were about to engage in some kind of sexual activity because of the state of dress that he was in, as well as the fact that there was a condom wrapper found nearby and a bottle of alcohol out in the woods with a rug on the ground. And of course, at that time, she never reported the Tyra Moore that someone had tried to rape her. You would think that someone who had just been physically abused, beaten, and raped would report that to the person who they love and they're coming home to. There was also another major problem with it, is that when she gave her confession to the police, she left out those details. She never offered them. I can't imagine a situation in which a woman is beaten, raped, abused, that she would not recall that. And it would not be one of the first things she would tell a police officer when talking about her involvement with that person, why she acted to defend herself because she was admitting that she killed him. She just forgot to put in, I did it in self-defense. I was being beaten, I was being raped, I was being tied to a steering wheel by my neck. Uh, that's just not something anyone could forget. That would be the first thing you would expect a person in that situation to say, yes, I did it, but here's why I did it. I had no choice. I was being attacked. I was being raped. None of that happened. Dr. Jethro Toomer met Eileen in the lead-up to this trial and psychologically evaluated her. He deemed Eileen not mentally competent to proceed, but the trial still went ahead. In the first meeting, her primary concern was um, basically explaining to me uh, how she felt she had been maligned and she had been wronged and she had been poorly treated. Uh, and so in that session, I allowed her to have a kind of catharsis, if you will, for want of a better word. And she described uh, all of the things that had happened to her with regard to her involvement in the criminal justice system up to that particular point in time. Uh, and that included things such as she felt she'd been mistreated by the police. She felt that nobody had listened to her, that people had made decisions about her without having all the facts. She felt that nobody wanted to listen to her side of the story 
uh, in terms of what transpired that they had made up in their minds that she had, uh, for whatever reason, uh, decided to kill him. So what was her story, and did you believe it? Her story was that Mr. Mallory had stopped and picked her up on the, on the highway, and uh, they had agreed that she would get paid in exchange for uh, having sex with him. And she said that when she had finished, all he had to do was to pay her and she would have been on her way, except that he decided at that point that he wanted to do some other, I remember her saying, quote unquote, kinky stuff. And that's when uh, they began to fight. And that's when he was shot. That's when she shot him. I had no reason not to believe what she said. It was feasible. And when you were talking with her, how did she present psychologically? She had a number of issues in terms of her overall psychological functioning. Uh, There were some what we call borderline characteristics in terms of her personality functioning, which means that her behavior was labile. It was subject to change. Her mood was subject to change. Uh, At certain points during the the evaluation, uh, she would be uh, despondent, uh, isolated, just terse answers, not very engaged in the process. And then at other times, she would become angry and she would become uh, hostile in terms of just talking about how she had been wronged and mistreated. And then there were other times when she would be grandiose and expansive. The behavior ran across a whole continuum. Back in court, the defense is adamant that Mallory tried to rape Eileen, and the prosecution expects this argument. But Eileen is about to do something that nobody sees coming. Even her defense team is shocked by her decision. Eileen takes the stand in her own defense. The prosecution is thrilled as this rarely happens. Eileen's now opened the door for the prosecution to cross-examine her. I thought to myself, I gotta fight, I'm gonna die. This guy is gonna play with me and play with me and then he's gonna kill me. He's already said he's going to kill me. He's, he's already said he killed other girls. I got to fight. I just got to fight for my Eileen has gone against the advice of her own attorneys. I speak to Joe Hobson about this decision. Eileen took the stand in her own defense for the Mallory case, which I'm sure her attorneys begged her not to. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I mean... You're right. As a criminal defense attorney, I feel you can never get convicted on what you don't say. Um, and people are always going to have that, that kind of saying in the background. But, um, you know, Eileen was just a very definitive type of persona. She'd let it rip. You know, Eileen was just not a very warm and fuzzy person. She really thought it could help. I mean, if her self-defense claim was true, it would be the first time in her life she's ever had the platform to be heard. 
People always think instinctively that they can talk their way out of anything. And don't forget too, when you're first arrested or investigated by a cop, they're always going to say to you, oh, talk to me. Oh, let's, let's just don't get lawyered up. Don't get a lawyer involved. Talk to me. I, I just think the best advice always is never, never open your mouth up. And do you think Eileen was judged in court on the merit of the crime she was accused of or more of how the media and public portrayed her? Well, she was a female, which was different. And I think that really threw a little bit of a, of a curveball to the system. We look to women to be the more stable of the population. She was judged on her status as being the first female. Um, she was linked to seven, you know, kind of gruesome type deaths. Taking the stand clearly does not work in Eileen's favor. But what's the prosecution's next move? Prosecuting attorney David Damore. You had to argue in court against the claims of self-defense. What did you use? What evidence did you use for that? Well, first, it was the confession that did not offer any possibility of self-defense or argument of self-defense in it. Two was Tyria Moore's testimony, the lack of physical evidence that would have been consistent with Ms. Warnos's now self-defense claim and the injuries to herself, the bruises, the ligature around the neck and being tied, if you can imagine, being pulled as you've got a metal ligature around your neck as you're tied to a steering wheel and being forcibly raped. You can't miss that. That's an impossibility, I believe, for my one woman to miss it on another woman. Uh, even a man, I don't think, could miss that. And David, what else did you use to argue your case? We had the Williams rule, the similar fact evidence. That case was made. Um, you know, was there going to be a guilty verdict? I was convinced there was once she took the stand and I knew that I could bring in the Williams rule. This is crucial to the case. In a criminal proceeding, jurors base their decision on evidence presented at trial. In the case of Florida's Williams rule, this evidence may include a defendant's past criminal history. It is bad news for Eileen. She's on trial for one murder, but the jury is also told about evidence the state has of six other men she is accused of killing, and also former weapons offenses. These are crimes that, at the moment, she is only suspected of. I speak to Joe Hobson about this. Eileen's uh, problem was there were, there were seven. Those murders were brought in normally as a principle of pure criminal law. You can't argue other acts to show that you're guilty on this one. But Williams rule says if you're establishing modus operandi, um, you can do it. And they did it. So they were able to introduce evidence of the others to show that on the occasion at issue, she acted in conformity therewith. Dear Don, the prosecutors claim I pulled out my gun to rob, to kill, kill, to rob. I did not know what was in the vehicles. If they had weapons such as a gun, well, I didn't know if they had it under the seat, close by them or what. Antonio had a heavy duty flashlight under the drive seat. Once we were in the back seat, he grabbed it immediately and hit me in the head with it. Batteries were inside. It was like a lead pipe. 
Just weeks into the case comes one of the most shocking revelations of all. Tyria, Eileen's girlfriend, testifies for the prosecution against the woman she says she loves. David Damore cross-examined her on the stand. Well, Tyria was a pretty matter-of-fact person. She really was a very good witness. Uh, she was not intimidated by the circumstances of being in the courtroom. She was not intimidated by Eileen because they literally were very uh, much uh, in, in front of each other. Uh, my questions to her were pretty matter-of-fact uh, because remember, we had the focus was on the Mallory death and it started off a little bit about their relationship, how they had known each other, that they lived together. Uh, and then it came to, did there come a day where you saw Eileen Warnos in, uh, I believe it was a yellow Cadillac? And can we just, let's discuss the circumstances of that when she got home. And, you know, did she tell you where she got the Cadillac from? Uh, did she tell you uh, anything about uh, being, in, being injured? Uh, the day before, of having been in contact with anyone. Uh, and so we went through that scenario of the recognizing that we anticipated the possibility of, of a self-defense argument. And so it really was nothing um, earth-shattering. It was just factual matters, but they were important facts as to, you know, injuries to the neck, bruising to the arms or shoulders. Uh, you know, concern about um, being injured, being threatened, um, being tortured, as, as she claimed uh, she was. And so that was the primary focus. And then, of course, uh, there was some discussion about the phone call that she and uh, Eileen had had after Eileen was arrested. Uh, it was important to us because without that, we really had no proof that Ty Moore was not more involved in some of these homicides other than really very little evidence with the exception of the two women in Peterson's little sunbird when they wrecked the car of her being there. Dear Dawn, on the stand, when Tyria said, I can't recall, I started laughing. I know Tyria like a book, and she'd never say those words, but instead would say, I can't remember. Trisha and I started laughing. That's what is called rehearsing a witness. Just one big mess up full of lies and shit. Tyria's testimony creates breathtaking courtroom drama. Best friend Dawn tells me this crushed Eileen. It was the ultimate betrayal, definitely. But it also was what she had to do, according to the state you know, in the law. She had to go up there and tell the truth. She really loved Ty. She loved her with all her heart. Yeah, that was totally the final straw for her. That really got too much for Annie to handle, I have to admit. It's kind of when she got up and decided to tell the judge, just send me back to my cell, she was done. Tyria has been the prosecution's ultimate weapon. The defense hopes for a lesser sentence, second-degree murder or manslaughter, maybe even life in prison. But now, a death sentence could be a reality. Dear Don, they have to prove without a reasonable doubt that I was raped, but they did not do that. That is one of at least 30 reasons why I did not receive a fair trial and also why I waived. 
There was no point in trying to fight a pack of evil cops in a county court system. They knew it was self-defense. The funny part is only God, him, and I were there. As the prosecution and defense issue their closing arguments, Eileen loses composure, sobbing uncontrollably in the courtroom. The jurors leave to make their decision. Soon, Eileen will hear if her fate will be death, just like her seven victims. You know, a lot of people say I should be ashamed to say I'm happy to be her best friend. You know, but I'm not ashamed of it. I, I mean, that's what makes us such good friends. We show a new, whole new meaning to the word friendship. Somebody standing by somebody, not for what they did or why they did it, just because they're friends in the first place. Let the judge and the jury and everybody else judge them. No part in my heart where I'd have to judge her for what she did. None of my business. Our friendship is about friendship. Thank God for the courts and all them. They do their job. And if she killed my husband or my brother or my grandpa, I would want no less. You know, so I keep that in mind, too. On the next episode of Mind of a Monster, Eileen's fate is sealed. But despite getting a verdict, the courtroom drama is far from over. Mind of a Monster, Eileen Warnos is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Harriet Mortar. Our editors are Sirkin Nihat and Millie Tapner. Audio engineering is by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. Our archive producer is Katia Long. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Arrow Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash. And executive producer is Stuart Pender. Eileen Warnos is played by Vicki Thorne. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.